0: Welcome to the Grow Your Practice Podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Chad Madden, owner of Madden Physical Therapy and Breakthrough. Join me each week as we dive into the best practices, systems, principles, tips, and tricks to help you grow your private practice. Hey, everybody, Chad Madden here with the Grow Your Practice Podcast. And today, We have a special guest, um, good friend of mine for the last, I believe going on 13 years now. Um, And our our guest is Mike Fink. Mike is the department chair, uh, head of the physical therapy program at Lebanon Valley College here in central Pennsylvania. Um, We've also worked together here at Madden and Gilbert physical therapy and uh, also, We're going to be asking Mike a lot of questions around what he has seen in research and the value that we're bringing to the marketplace as physical therapists. So welcome to the podcast here,
1: Mike. Oh, thank you very much, Chad. I'm glad to be a part of it. And uh, yes, 13 years, I can't believe we're over a decade in friendship and working relationship together. So it's exciting to be here and be a part of this.
0: Yeah, I combined, I think that was about seven kids ago for
1: for us. (laughs) That is.
0: Uh, Yeah, just uh, Mike is a father of four. Um, and I have a, a couple in there as well. So that, that's that's what we're alluding to there. We have a share a lot of uh, fatherhood uh, trauma, <laughs> I guess is <laughs> a good, good way to put it. Um, so when we met um, back in 2008, 2009, Mike, you, you were with the Air Force. I believe you were there for 10 years. Correct. Yeah. So can you talk about that experience? Because to me, that's it's fascinating. You were exposed to a ton of continuing education and the latest research but can you talk about your your role there, uh, where you were at, and what you did?
1: Sure. So I'll kind of take you through a brief history of my Air Force career. And I graduated from Thomas Jefferson University in 2000, and then joined the Air Force pretty quickly after graduation. Uh, At that time, I really wanted to get into orthopedics, and I saw some benefit to serving my country, as well as being a PT in the military. I heard that That was sort of where you can really grow as a physical therapist. There's a lot of autonomy in the way of prescribing medications and ordering imaging and really getting to treat patients at the first point of care. They're really the beginning of direct access in a really meaningful way. So I was stationed out in California, Travis Air Force Base. And that opportunity gave me a chance to deploy. So I deployed for Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom. And it was in that kind of uh, arena that I realized the value of manual therapy and hands-on care and really what physical therapists can bring at that first point of care. Um, I was the only physical therapist in a base population of about 5,000 airmen and soldiers and sailors. And I was the single busiest provider at the camp that I was at. I was busier than any other healthcare professional, including all the surgeons and physicians that were there. So I saw a ton of patients, but what I realized is I had very little equipment to use and they had to get quote back to the fight. They get back to their job duties. And I didn't have a ton of modalities. I didn't have a ton of just exercise equipment there because we can't really deploy that uh, in a forward operating base. And so my hands were really what I had. And that proved extremely valuable and I was amazed at what I could do with just that little bit of equipment that I had and a good set of hands and I also realized that I needed a better set of hands and I realized that it wasn't as good as it could be and uh, the military continued to send me for more education um, and a lot of that was revolving around manual therapy and after my deployment I was selected to go to the West Point Sports Medicine Residency Uh, up in New York. So I spent some time at West Point. And then from there, I was stationed at the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And uh, that's when we met shortly after my uh, duty station there. I came back to my home state of Pennsylvania. And uh, that's we will go on to how Chad and I met, but it was sort of serendipitous to say the least.
0: Yeah. Hey, podcast listeners, when we make assumptions about others, it's just not fair. In spite of that, I'm going to make an assumption about you. You have a growth mindset. You want to help more people leave a bigger impact, build a better practice. Am I close? If I'm right, then I have a unique offer that I think you'll be interested in. But first, if you're a regular listener, you probably know that this is brought to you by Breakthrough, the leading platform for private practice growth. Breakthrough's mission is to help people in pain get back to normal, live healthier, and do it naturally. The best way to do this is by Empowering private practice owners like you to grow your business through direct to consumer marketing. If you're a practice owner with a growth mindset, you'd benefit from a risk free consultation with a breakthrough growth expert. Go to getbreakthrough.com forward slash podcast offer to take advantage of this unique opportunity. On that call, you'll learn the key principles of how practice owners are helping more people, creating a bigger impact, and building better businesses. With Breakthrough Systems. As an added bonus, the team at Breakthrough is giving a $50 Amazon gift card to any of the podcast listeners who attend this growth consultation. Sign up for your growth consultation and $50 gift card at getbreakthrough.com forward slash podcast offer. Again, that's getbreakthrough.com forward slash podcast offer. So uh, we, uh, we had a mutual um, colleague, Mason Rockwell. And I, I I know I had reached out to Mason and uh, I can't remember if I was interviewing him or if he had a network, but I I just remember that he connected us um, or he brought a name up and uh,
1: maybe it it wasn't you at first. And then, yeah. Do you remember the story, the details of what happened? I, I do. I, he was, interested in the position that you were advertising but he was not in the area and it didn't look like he could come to the area but he had pitched my name forward to you and said hey i know this individual he's been in the air force for a while his name is mike fink you should really get to know him but unbeknownst to you then he called me and said hey there's this great guy in harrisburg his treatment uh, aligns with sort of i think your philosophy Um, you should get together and then uh, another individual whom I worked with at the college sort of did the same thing. Reached out to both you Chad, as well as myself independently of each other. And so we called each other not knowing that the other had even heard of each other. And it was sort of that, oh, wait, I heard about you and I heard about you and let's see if we can make this work. And yeah, it was the beginning of a great story. Yeah, that's, that's right. The, w-
0: Mike, what was the biggest, um, so you went from, uh, I'm sorry, Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs. Yep. So you were in Colorado Springs, and I, I recall in the early days when we were talking, you you would walk in at six in the morning, and there there was a line of thirty five people there or something <laughs> like that, wait, waiting to be seen. Um. A diff- and you know, you also mentioned the uh, significant autonomy that you have as a physical therapist uh, within the Air Force um, and the Armed Services, and then you came to let's call it civilian life or private practice life. Right. What were some of the major differences that you haven't already mentioned um, in terms of the mindset, the the shift that you had to make um, in in changing settings?
1: So I think one of the biggest differences that I saw was in the mindset of the other clinicians in the private practice sector that's different from the military. Um, I was used to, in my world, having the other physical therapists and technicians that really play the role of physical therapist assistants, wanting that autonomy and absolutely wanting that level of responsibility. And when I came and worked in the private practice and came to sort of the civilian sector, what I saw is not everybody wants that level of responsibility um, as a professional. And not everybody also believes or could see the value that we could bring forward of seeing patients that acutely or that Um, soon after injury. So it was a little bit of the culture change and the mindset that was different. And I think that was just from past experiences that they hadn't seen what could be possible and the job satisfaction that increases when you have that level of responsibility and really can see the outcomes in a much more positive way because uh, almost anything that comes out of literature says the closer we can get to the point of injury, the better the outcomes can be. And so that's what we always wanna do is we wanna get close to that point of, of injury.
0: That's great. The, uh, the, the other thing that it, because we're now 20 plus um, years into our, our, our professions, the, we, we've seen a lot of change and I'm not sure what uh, your the amount of manual therapy training that you had at Thomas Jefferson, perhaps you can comment on that, but I, at least with my... Peers, as we were going through uh, whatever college or university it was, and we, I was most of my friends were doing masters of physical therapy at the time. Um, We we weren't getting a lot of training in manual therapy. And over time, you know, we had like the uh, Tim Flynn, Josh Cleland generation where we started getting very segmental. um, And then we went to clinical predictor rules. And now we, the pendulum was kind of settled back in the the middle with a, a, a newer. Uh, let's call it a hybrid model or more specific model, but manual therapy is always maintained there. I'm I'm wondering if you could comment historically, like what changes have you seen over the last uh, 20 plus years within uh, physical therapy and the services that we provide?
1: Okay. Um, Chad, I much like you did not have a lot of manual therapy coming out of uh, physical therapy school And most, if not near all of my manual therapy training came through the military, came through those educational opportunities while I was in the military. Um, So yeah, we come from sort of the same lineage in that respect. I do see that manual therapy, If we can go historically back even before you or I graduated, manual therapy had a pretty significant place in physical therapy. However, I think many of the individuals that were leading the way in manual therapy really put it on a pedestal, made the traditional physical therapist feel like it was almost unattainable without decades and decades of practice. So I think that was part of the problem is they put it so far away from what a new graduate or a novice clinician could actually attain, but they it was this gap. And I think they wanted to keep that gap because that gap actually created some star power for them and, and kind of kept it within their, their realm. And I think because of that many physical therapists felt like we had enough other resources that could get patients better that we could almost give it away or do without it. And I think that happened early on. Then we realized we gave away like the golden ticket and oh, now we need to bring it back. And a bit of the influence from those individuals that taught it was saying that we really need to be specific. We need to be so precise because vague and ambiguous doesn't do us any good that it really took on sort of an osteopathic type of model. And so can we rotate, can we flex, can we extend each segment in the lumbar spine or thoracic spine? And really that was based off palpation and palpation has really come under fire quite a bit through the literature because we often see that it doesn't have great inter or intra-rater reliability. So then we said, well, we know the palpation which all this stuff is based on isn't really good. So is there another way? Well. Is it really specific or is it general? And so the pendulum did swing. We realized that no matter what we do to a segment, it affects segments far below, far above and are reaching around. And I think it almost, as you said, swung the pendulum in the other direction, gave us almost too much reason to just be general, to not even try to be specific and just do these long lever type techniques. And then we realized, no, we should try to be as specific as possible, understanding that it does have a global general effect. And then we really start bringing in the interregional uh, or regional interdependence that it does reach into d- different areas of the body. So that's where things are kind of right now is we're looking at how do we become specific, understanding that it go- reaches beyond the specific area that we're trying to reach, also understanding that we're probably not as specific as we think we are or we're like to be. And then the next element of that is how do we pick the right technique? And then how do we assume that their patients are going to get better if we do a given technique?
0: That's great. So there, there's a, uh, let's call it a more developed a more mature decision tree today than we had 10, 20 years ago. Absolutely. Yep. And I, I can recall, uh, a, a a mutual friend of ours uh, another physical therapist who uh, I believe was making fun of me and they said that I would probably do a first rib mobilization on somebody with plantar fasciitis which was that that will just forever stick with me but uh, that was the general phase (laughs) of the uh, pendulum swing for sure Um, that's great so the the other thing Mike um, I I want you to talk about a little bit um, before we get into uh, trends that you're seeing within the marketplace right now um, and specifically education um, and physical therapy career is uh, research. I, I, I'm not sure exactly where I got this from. I was trying to find it, but I, I believe you were published multiple times. I think one time that you had like four published papers in three months or something like that in peer reviewed journals. Can you talk a little bit about that? How, um, what you're looking at in uh, you know, not only your career but how that has evolved and where you think the research is going In the future okay
1: so that that is correct i've done quite a bit of research Um, i think this conversation needs to start out with what people may not understand about publication and research is it's much like the news media Um, we want to publish things that are sensational we want to publish things that are um, positive So there's a lot of great research out there that never gets published because it's not any of those things. It's not sensational. It's not going to really increase readership though it's actually very important. And I heard a statistic that says 75% of published articles show a positive outcome in some way. And there's a whole body of research that shows negative outcomes or no outcomes that aren't published because it's not sensational. So that's one one thing that if we really truly think that what we're reading in published articles is pure in every sense of the way, that's not the way it is. These are these publishing companies have to survive. They have to have readership. They have to have income. Um, And different publications focus on areas that they consider their niche. So they're gonna find articles and there may be two articles that are not at the same level but the one that's at a lesser level aligns more with their journal, so they're going to publish that one and forgo the one that's actually a higher caliber. So that sort of sets the stage and they don't think a lot of people understand that they just sort of say research is this all end all be all, but it isn't. It is a business as well. so We have to understand that. Um, so now the research is looking at manual therapy, its immediate effects, its long term effects. The difference between those two and more importantly how do we select techniques to give the best outcome or how do we weave those techniques together to yield the best outcome and that really has created a whole generation of what we call clinical prediction rules we sort of talked about that a little bit earlier but how do you select the right patient and how do you select the right treatment and match those two together that's where the research is right now and we have quite a bit of great clinical prediction rules that really lead us down that pathway of, here's the best technique for this ideal patient.
0: That's great. And and that even uh, traverses um, physical therapy. I I see that in cardiac care, especially just only because I'm reading the research with my uh, family heritage, (laughs) we'll leave it at that. But uh, reading a lot there, um, I've seen it in uh, diabetic studies in particular, um, yeah, clinical predictor rules are pretty uniform across all medicine and
1: healthcare right now in terms of research. They are. And when we're looking at most clinical prediction rules and predictor rules, they have one common criteria in almost all of them, and it's time time from onset of injury or time from onset of symptoms. And it's shortened time, meaning patients have better outcomes with hands on care, manual therapy, if it's closer to that onset point. So if we look at uh, clinical prediction rules for that would be for the lumbar spine and highlight a positive outcome from a manual therapy technique driven at that, it's again short time, same thing for the thoracic, time, thoracic area as well as the cervical area. So that really plays into the argument of why direct access is so necessary because direct access saves us the very thing that is embedded in almost any, any clinical predictor rule, which is time.
0: Smart. Uh, out of curiosity, is there any way to access the research that is not published?
1: That is actually very difficult. Um, I can tell you a personal kind of saga of looking at uh, published research. It was there was a um, dissertation, a doctoral dissertation, done by someone down in Africa, and I had to go through a library to create an interlibrary loan, to get to their library to photocopy it. It took like seven weeks for me to get part of this thesis that I needed. It's actually very difficult. And if they don't publish an abstract, it's virtually unknown. So there has to be some nugget that you can latch onto that then you can use as sort of your first clue to find the rest of it.
0: Okay, fair enough. Um, We're in the information age, but it's not complete information. Correct. Got it. Um, the, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about, Mike, and uh, I, I, I wanna set this up in kind of a funny way, but this was a private owner conversation that I had, a um, uh, uh, conversation I was having with a private practice owner and they were struggling with hiring. It's a real problem right now. We do have a, a, a shortage of, uh, well, workers across the board today, but uh, in, in particular healthcare, there are predicted to be huge shortages Here moving forward, demand is increasing um, greater than the supply of DPTs that are graduating or any other clinician, frankly. And the, uh, so I was going through the template of here's how we hire and everything else. And I think right now we employ 40, I just looked at 43 or 41 clinicians and roughly 23 DPTs as of today and I was talking with this owner. I said, here's the format, you know, do this. This is how to think through it. And they said, yeah, but you have Mike Fink. And I, said, well, hold on. I was like, let's just take a step back here. And I said, you know, we it, like this is how we work with Lebanon Valley College and now uh, a few other universities, uh, Temple comes to mind, University of Pitt, et cetera. And this is really what we're looking for in our, uh, student dpt program um, as we're you know sharing manual therapy techniques over their clinical experience etc and this is how to set that up but i know um, you understand both sides so you understand the private practice sector and what we're looking for in terms of uh, hiring uh, entry-level dpts and you also get to interact on a daily basis with a couple hundred student DPTs. so can you talk about um, How to balance the two, what should and realize that the majority of this audience is private practice owners. As private practice owners, what who are not necessarily privy to what a a 24-year-old DPT is thinking about, can you help us tap into their mind a little bit and what we should be looking for in an entry-level DPT?
1: Yes. So there's two mindsets that are usually um, on polar opposites on opposite sides of the spectrum that create this lack of communication between private practice and academia and i'll start with one it's the private practice uh, owner or the private practice clinician thinks that academia are just out of touch professors that live in an ivory tower that have no touch with reality and they're teaching things from this textbook esoteric level but they have no idea of how you know the rubber meets the road that's one side the other side is from the professor side that says, oh, the clinician or the private practice owner, they're just worried about one thing. That's the almighty dollar. They're not worried about treating patients. They're not looking at research. They're not doing the best evidence. They're still the dinosaur running off what they learned 20 years ago. Like, And it's this this opposition that keeps people coming into conversation with one another with already these false preconceived ideas. And so how this needs to happen is for the, uh, what I would say is for the clinician, the owner, that's the audience that we have here, is to understand or realize that the professors are trying to understand the relevancy. Some of them do better than others, especially if they're still treating, but really even if they're treating a minimal amount, they might not be as in touch. And it's part of the clinician's job is to help educate those academics to understand where The dynamic is right now, Um, and the other thing, the other side of that, with the academics as well, because there's great clinicians, and I always see see the uh, irony in that is we as professors have no problem sending our students out for their clinical rotations, having the clinicians educate them, but then at the same moment, you're going to find some that actually hold this mindset that the clinicians aren't quite to the level of the academics. So I think recognizing that is the first stage, and. The second part of that I would say is many clinicians are lab instructors TA so they're embedded into the academic system and if you have any individuals that have interest in that and or even if they don't I would encourage you to foster that personal growth, but also foster that connection because that can be the pipeline to the inside and. uh, what I always tell students, at least my students at the end of graduation, is I said, many of you will work for companies that are staffed by your lab instructors. And what you don't realize is you've been going on a three year interview that you had no idea. They saw your true colors, they saw your work ethic, they saw your intellect, they saw your promise. And that is really the truth. And I think, at least for to bridge of the gap of, private practice, and academia is to build that relationship, not kind of be in silos and wall yourself off from each other.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Breakthrough, the leading platform for practice growth. Breakthrough has helped over 1,500 healthcare practice owners leave a bigger impact in their communities and grow a larger business. As the founder of Breakthrough, I've developed a library of educational resources on practice growth. These are based on my learnings, from my own experience as a private practice owner, plus the experience working with thousands of other owners in the Breakthrough community. If you have a growth mindset and you're hungry for free resources to help you grow, check out Breakthrough's resource hub. Go to getbreakthrough.com forward slash resources, where you'll find on-demand trainings, tools, templates, planning guides, and a host of other free resources. Again, you can find these at getbreakthrough.com resources if you're interested in getting direct support with your practice growth, you can request a free growth consultation at getbreakthrough.com forward slash podcast offer. Guilty is charged. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, uh, we'll, we'll say a, a bit more wise now, but uh, yes, Mike, that was, you, you've been uh, significantly tolerant of my ignorance. So thank you. <laughs> uh, we'll we'll leave it at that and it's probably wonderful for you when you get to go to an event and interact with a couple hundred private practice owners and listen to how wonderful we all talk about academia uh those in academia right yeah. uh, <laughs> it's great um very well said so the um you, you talked about that the i know for us um, years ago, especially when there was a great disparity between what universities and colleges were teaching in their programs regarding manual therapy, the one differentiator for us is we, I would just interview them. We would do a working interview where they had to treat me, and I, I think that was a little nerve-wracking for, for many to go through, um, but we at least got to see the thought process and what their, uh, the, the base level of manual therapy skills were like if they were not already um, had done a rotation here. Um, can you talk about that? Can you talk about the advice that you're giving? Um, and I, I, I can remark on the dramatic transformation that LVC has had over the last 13 years with the very first time I ever went in as a guest and did a manual therapy, um, we'll call it a demonstration, and how everybody in the room was floored that we could actually do a thoracic thrust or um, you know, a long access distraction or reverse heart or any of those techniques um, to today where the students that we're seeing emerge from the program have a very good understanding, some of them very advanced. Um, but can you talk about that? So I'm an employer. Um, I'm going to hire a DPT. How can I look for, how can I evaluate uh, the manual therapy skill um, that that uh, young DPT is bringing to the table?
1: Okay, so that I have very strong thoughts on this, and uh, as I do with many things, Chad. Uh, So the first thing is, is where in the program are they beginning to be introduced to that? Uh, What you'd want to see as an owner, as a clinician, is that it would be introduced in the earlier stages. And why do I say that? Because the earlier hands-on manual therapy care is introduced, the less innate fear that people have of it. Um, and that's what we're really seeing is this new generation doesn't fear it like the older generation, like our generation, um, Chad, that had not had it in school. Um, and we were told how dangerous it was. And there was lectures upon lectures about precautions and contraindications and all the big, bad, and ugly. And when I talked to individuals and asked why they're not using hands-on care, it really comes down to two reasons. Either one, they're afraid. They're afraid of the unknown. They're afraid of the outcome. They're afraid of... of really many things that they can't even put a label to, or they just aren't trained. The training part, that's an easy one. The fear, that's the more of emotional barrier. And so that has nothing to do with skill or lack of skill. That is just the emotional baggage that sometimes we bring with us. And the younger generation really has that fear taken away. So the question that I would ask would be, where is it layered into the program? The earlier on it is, the less fear is Uh, surrounds it, because if you wait till the end, it's almost like you have not got the ability to safely do this unless you've been through this ladder of events. So earlier on is better. The second is when you talk to the professor that teaches it, really see if they're fearful because whatever that professor embodies, everybody else will embody as well. They become a shadow of that person that's in front of the stage. Um, And so just make sure that they are comfortable with it. And the third thing is, is be specific. When you ask, do you do manual therapy or do you teach manual therapy in your academic program? A lot of people say yes, but manual therapy is such an umbrella term that can be anything from like petrissage and effleurage, basically the massage type strokes to the thrust techniques at the cervical spine. And so really where in that spectrum are they teaching this stuff? And how much, I guess another thing I'll add is how much time is devoted to it. Because manual therapy is a psychomotor skill. It's not just an intellectual, knowledge-based component in a program. So you have to put the time in. So individuals feel comfortable, competent, effective, and efficient with doing this stuff.
0: So we're back to the clinical predictor rule is time, once again. Time, yeah, once again. Uh, Wonderful. So the the other thing that I want to ask you about, Mike, is uh, has been a little bit controversial. I, I think it has died down in our profession a bit, but um there was a pretty, so as manual therapy was rising uh, to prominence or had its um, second life uh, a, a few years ago, um, the, th- there was a, a, a bit of a counter movement uh, within the physical therapy community against it. Um, and there, this line, I believe it can be traced back to an early Robin McKenzie training video um, which was something along the lines of, you know, we never, when we can, we want to avoid manual therapy because it makes the patient more dependent on us. Um, Can you talk, and I know you have a a, a very well thought out viewpoint on it, you've commented on it before, but um, can you you share your philosophy with where manual therapy fits into the uh, the therapeutic process?
1: Okay, yes, and and you're right. uh, I have thought about this quite a bit, especially as we talk about the pill society that we have, the, if I can take a pill for it, that's the easiest thing. You know, if I want to diet, I'll just take a pill. If I, you know, need to go to sleep, I'll take a pill. If I want to wake up from the sleep that I took a pill for, I'll take another pill. Like, so you can layer this and it's just this, let me get a pill. So that's passive treatment. That's a passive way to treat any ailment. And that is the fear or was the fear at one time that manual therapy is just a passive treatment. The patient isn't invested and they're just looking for somebody else to do something to them, on them, for them, that they don't have to invest energy or um, any work on their part. So manual therapy, I view very much like a type of medication, and let me kind of explain this, is if somebody has an infection, sometimes the best way to have to get through that infection is to give them like a steroid dose pack, just something really quick for a finite amount of time that can squash that inflammation and then can allow their body's immune system to then rise to the level where they can overcome it. And so manual therapy in my viewpoint is kind of like the steroid dose pack. Sometimes for the pathology, the injury at Uh, that's there, we need to do something to get the body in a position that then it can begin to heal. And I think the body has a miraculous ability to heal itself if we set up the right environment to allow it to do so. And that hands-on technique can set up that environment. Now, manual therapy in isolation, in almost every research that you'll see, falls far, far short of manual therapy combined with therapeutic exercise. So those are part and parcel. But manual therapy really has a role in the early stages of care, where we get that problem sort of under control. And then as we draw down the manual therapy, we increase the therapeutic exercise, where in the early stages, manual therapy might take more of the treatment plan than therapeutic exercise. But we Definitely want to draw that down, the manual therapy down, increase the therapeutic exercise. And that's what the patient's then going to be able to do on their own or to self-manage and self-maintain that level of achievement that they've sustained. So if you don't have that second part, if you don't have the therapeutic exercise part, you will create a dependent scenario. And in some ways, you may actually look like a different profession other than physical therapy.
0: Very fair. Um, great. So uh, I, do you have any manual therapy courses coming up?
1: Yes, we do. We are filling up the spring with, uh, we have our cervicothoracic one course, we have a lumbopelvic one course, and then we have cervicothoracic two, lumbopelvic two courses, and we even have upper and lower extremity courses as well. And it's and an those, even... I was just going to say, and those courses funnel into a certified orthopedic manual therapist certification. And um, we can, if I can still just a little bit more of the soundbite here is uh, what a lot of individuals like about this is it creates sort of a level playing field for their clinics, because that rather than having one therapist schedule be super full and in demand and another's being a little bit light, it really creates parity. So then you can universally fill schedules.
0: Yeah. With, with the, the, the thing that I've heard owners specifically talk about repeatedly is I have 10 therapists. They're all doing their own thing. They've all had a smorgasbord of con, continuing education courses over the years and they have different skill sets. I want to get everybody on the same the same playing field in terms of competencies. So that's that uh, that's just another way I've heard what you're, you're saying, Mike. So uh, Breakthrough Manual Therapy, uh, you have a certification there. What is the, what's the best way for somebody to get in contact with you or learn more about those courses? Okay.
1: So you can search us out on Breakthrough Manual Therapy courses, or if you want to really reach out to me as far as the academic side, you can always reach me by my email, which is fink. F-I-N-K, at L-V-C dot E-D-U. So it's my last name, Fink, at L-V-C, which stands for Lebanon Valley College, dot E-D-U, which is the first three letters of the word education.
0: Great. Um, manual therapy, there was another question that I have for you. It's gone. Um, I do have a final question, though. So this is a new segment, Mike, and you don't even know about this yet. Uh, <laughs> but I have... Uh, ben Wapker was a guest um, on our podcast and he recommended these pod decks to me. So they're questions, some of them highly provocative. Don't worry, I took all the highly provocative <laughs> ones out. Um, but just pick a number one, two, three, four, five, and we're going to.
1: I'll pick four.
0: Great. So number four. Oh, I went the wrong way. Four. Um, what gives you butterflies in your stomach?
1: What gives me butterflies? Well, I'll tell you. Other than this question. Yeah, other than this question. (laughs) um, I think like uh, most people, what gives me butterflies is when I'm sort of put on display. And sometimes you can feel like when you're sort of on stage and you're on the fringes of an area that you've really investigated or knowing. I I think that's what a lot of people feel like butterflies when they feel like they have a little bit of less than optimal competence or they feel like they're maybe doing a little bit of that like imposter syndrome. And I say that because I hear my students use the phrase imposter syndrome a lot. And I know that they know so much, but it's their confidence sometimes. So maybe that kind of stuff, Um, but I've been doing this for a while. And I'll tell you leadership in the military shows you how to sort of cloak that even if you're a little uh, (laughs) butterflied under underneath.
0: That's great. Mike Fink, uh, thank you very much for doing this. Uh, I've enjoyed it immensely. You've covered a lot of uh, ground from, uh, yeah, really the whole scope of manual therapy and how it's evolved over the last 20 plus years, what uh, employers should be looking for um, in terms of manual therapy skill set. I thought you dropped some really good nuggets there in terms of looking at what the the department's actually offering within their curriculum. Um, some really smart insight on research articles and realizing what it is and what it isn't. And then I love the academia versus the private practice owner mentality. That was that was excellent. So thank you very much for doing this, Mike.
1: Uh, thank you very much for having me, Chad. It's been a pleasure. Remember to visit
0: getbreakthrough.com to access our free resource library designed specifically for private practice growth. While you're there, make sure you register for a complimentary growth assessment to learn about potential opportunities for growth in your local market again thank you for tuning into the grow your practice podcast and supporting our mission to help people in pain get back to normal naturally